Michael here with Alder. So in the spirit of generational leadership, I'm exploring all the things that help us live a legacy that makes the country freer and better for future generations. Sometimes, maybe often, that means going full nerd alert and making sense of big ideas and cultural and political trends. Uh, big ideas and trends, they can sometimes see abstract or remote, so I wanna try to ground it. Today's big idea is liberalism, the classical kind, the one that affects the legacies we live on a daily basis and the futures and the societies that we build. It's the kind that respects individual dignity and liberty, and it birthed precious systems that we take for granted, like democracy and free enterprise. Um, so liberalism, it's on the attack and it's on the decline, and that scares me when I think about the type of world my kids are gonna grow up in. So we turn to an intellectual titan to help us lead us through this discussion, and that is Francis Fukuyama. He's famous, he's prolific, he's deep, and he recently wrote a book called Liberalism and Its Discontents. He talked about the fundamentals of liberalism, the wisdom, the temperaments, the behaviors that support it, how and why it's under attack, and how we can preserve and advance it for future generations. We also got a healthy dose of geopolitical and national security perspectives. All in all, he armed us with the knowledge on how to be freer and better. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thank you. Why I think this is an existential conversation is is a lot of what we are experiencing as a country right now is a lot of division, a lot of disruption, a lot of isolation, a lot of loneliness. And we tend to be looking to our politics to solve it. Um, we tend to be looking to you know our tech platforms to solve it as opposed to seeing ourselves as the agents of change. And a free and open system re requires um, the participants in that system to see themselves as the vehicles of change. Um, and that that big theory, that big thinking about how to order the world and how to live a meaningful life is called liberalism. And we're going to go into it quite a bit more. But it is also the wellspring uh, that created the intellectual framework of free enterprise, and that turned into the wealth that all of you have been able to generate and all the opportunity and innovation that all of you have been able to generate, uh, even living in a free system like we do in this country uh, until democracy and the idea of democracy spread all over the world. Um, and we shouldn't take that for granted because as we see in China and Iran and in North Korea and in Cuba and in Russia and in Ukraine, that it should never be taken for granted. Um, but as this idea spread, it was um, it was anchored in certain a certain disposition. It was anchored in a certain value system. It was anchored in a certain set of behaviors, and we're we're losing sight of that. We're being we're kind of having an individual and collective emotional hijacking, um, and so we have an, a true intellectual titan. When I was in high school. Um, and I started getting inter in interested in ideas. I was told that ideas have consequences and ideas can change lives and ideas can change the world. And we need to be committed to, to understanding them and being vessels of them. And by doing so, you become an intellectual titan. And the first intellectual titan uh, that I ever read and was inspired by was Professor Fukuyama. Um, he's I, a prolific writer, a prolific thinker, a professor. Um, he's known for writing about the end of history, uh, post-Cold War, of how these ideas of freedom spread and really became a benchmark, uh, which I still believe is true, even though it's being challenged. Um, he wrote The or Origins of Political Order. He wrote Identity. Um, he wrote, uh, he, his latest is, or one of his latest is Liberalism and Its Discontents. Uh, and it ex just, I think, really summarizes what is liberalism and how is it being a Attacked and what is the way forward uh, in a way that 
I haven't been seen anybody able to do. Um, and so we're going to have a really good conversation with him about all these big, heavy things about how to live well and how to live freely, which require kind of the same thing. So with that, Professor, if you want mind, can you just, this might sound like a basic question, but let's just first define liberalism. In the American political gamesmanship context, it has a very specific connotation uh, and definition, but you're going to broaden it out. So okay. what is what is classical liberalism in the way that we should understand it, not in the political football sense? Uh, sure. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about that topic uh, to this uh, audience. Um, so liberalism uh, really has a different meaning depending on what part of the world you're in. Uh, in the United States, it obviously connotes uh, somebody left of center that wants more equality, more you know, state intervention to produce equality. In Europe, it's actually something of the opposite. Liberal parties tend to be center right. They're more interested in free markets and you know entrepreneurship and that sort of thing. Uh, I have a broader definition that actually encompasses both of those. Uh, liberals, in my view, have certain foundational ideas. The first one is that they believe that all human beings basically have an equal degree of dignity. Uh, and uh, there's not one group within you know, humanity that has a higher status than uh, than others. Uh, and therefore, you know, everybody has uh, rights. Uh, and I think institutionally, a liberal society is one that protects those rights uh, by enforcing them. Uh, you know, the way, let's say, President Eisenhower sent the, you know, National Guard to Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, back in the 1950s in order to enforce the right of these, you know, black school children to uh, attend a, a white school. Uh, so liberalism is really built around a rule of law, uh, and it also limits government power over individuals because it you know, believes that individuals do have a moral status, they have a certain dignity, and that dignity needs to be uh, protected by a system of rights. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's basically it. I think you know, countries with a big welfare state like Sweden or Denmark are liberal countries because they do protect basic rights, but those with a less developed welfare state like the US or, I don't know, maybe Japan uh, also qualify because, you know, in those countries, you're free to criticize the government, you're free to organize, you're free to do a lot of things, which is not true in, you know, illiberal places. Now, can you Let's let's jump right into the biggest critiques. I see Roderick's here, so I, unless I'm contrarian and rigorous, he's not. He's going to be disappointed in me. Uh, and so let's talk about the the critiques of liberalism, and namely, um, you're seeing it from both the right and the left. Um, and can you talk about what are what are the uh, kind of schools of thought or the disciplines that are challenging liberalism, and how is it manifesting, ranging from the Victor Orban you know, school to the, you know, we kind of alt-right, uh, Victor Orban to the, you know, call it the woke left, uh, sure. where those are coming from and what the core arguments are. Well, you know, the argument that I make is that a lot of the critiques are actually not against the core principles of liberalism. I mean, very few people in the world just outright assert that one group is, you know, more pri privileged than another, uh, or there shouldn't be a rule of law. 
that governments should just do whatever they want. I mean, that there are people like that, but you know, I think the critiques come from uh, people living in liberal societies, and they're of two sorts. Uh, the progressive left has always had a problem with liberals because uh, liberalism among the rights that are protected are property rights, the freedom to transact and engage in uh, you know, commercial activity. Uh, and because of the interpretation of liberalism that grew into something that is sometimes labeled neoliberalism in the 1980s and 90s, it was a kind of you know, hyper capitalism that uh, really tried to uh, weaken the state or cut the state back to the point that uh, a lot of people were left unprotected by the sorts of, you know, uh, policies that had existed uh, in, in previous decades. It increased the level of inequality, uh, deregulation of the financial sector uh, produced a lot of financial instability that we're still living with in many ways. And, you know, it kind of culminated in the the mortgage crisis in 2008, where millions of Americans lost their homes and, you know, the hedge fund managers and, and you know, rich people uh, survived fairly well. So that, you know, I think laid the ground for uh, a lot of unhappiness, both on the left and the right. So in a way, both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were appealing to the people that were left out of the economy that had been, this global economy that had been produced by you know, not necessarily lib liberal, but neoliberal uh, ideas, a hyper competitive world uh, in which you didn't have much, uh, you know, state management of that uh, process. Uh, so that's one set. You know, I think also people on the progressive left are impatient that liberals believe in the rule of law. So they tend to be very procedural and they just like to have stronger government action, uh, you know, to correct the social injustices they see. The um, right-wing critique is a little bit different. Um, liberalism, you know, just to back up historically a little bit, uh, arose for the first time in Europe in the middle of the 17th century at the end of the European wars of religion. Uh, you know, after the Protestant Reformation, Europeans killed each other pretty continuously for the next 150 years over, you know, things like the doctrine of transubstantiation. It's kind of hard to believe at this point that people would die for this, but not only did they die, they were disemboweled and burned at the stake and, you know, a tremendous amount of violence over these religious beliefs. And at the end of that period, early liberals got up and said, well, what we need to do is lower the horizons of politics so that Politics isn't about uh, imposing a single way of life and a single vision of the good life. Rather, we're all free to pursue our own visions of the good life. We have to tolerate people that are different from uh, ourselves. Uh, and the main limitation would be, you know, when your vision of the good life interferes with my ability to pursue my vision. And since then, you know, that's been the basic idea in the 19th and 20th centuries, it wasn't religion, it was nationalism that really challenged tolerance. That is to say, you know, aggressive visions of the national superiority of one race or one ethnic group over others. And again, in 1945, uh, I think most Europeans and Americans, you know, said, okay, enough of that. 
we need to have a liberal world order that uh, will allow different nations to live you know, peacefully next to each other. So that was the basic idea. I think it worked really well for the next 70 years, but there's a lot of people around the world that aren't satisfied with that. Uh, they want a society where everybody is moving in lockstep with everybody else, and there is a very strong uh, national vision of the good. So like an example of this right now is India. India was founded in 1946 by Gandhi and Nehru as a liberal society. You know, the country is unbelievably diverse in terms of region, language, caste, religion. Uh, and really, liberalism was, you know, uh, made the dominant structure because Indians had to live with one another. But now, for the past several years, you've had a prime minister, Narendra Modi, representing a Hindu nationalist uh, party that wants to change uh, Indian national identity to one that's based on Hinduism. And, you know, minor problem, there's like 200 million Indian citizens that are Muslim, they're not Hindu, and therefore they're left out of that, that national picture. And I think, you know, in a way, it's kind of, it's, it's already in the process of replicating what Europe suffered during its wars of religion, where, uh, you know, one sect would not tolerate the other and, uh, you know, the country then descends into communal violence. But that's still a very powerful call. So you get countries like Turkey, Hungary, I say Donald Trump in the United States, you know, with his Make America Great slogan has a similar kind of vision of reestablishing a narrower definition of national identity that doesn't necessarily regard all groups uh, and all human beings as uh, as being equal. Uh, and it's that kind of discontent that's driving, I think, a lot of right-wing populist movements. They feel most threatened by immigration because they feel that foreigners coming into their country are uh, undermining that sense of who they are and that kind of national unity. And therefore, you know, most populist parties are, uh, are anti uh anti-immigrant. So those are some of the problems that have arisen and some of the reasons that people are, you know, at the, at the moment dissatisfied with liberalism. Can you talk a bit, and then I want to come back to sort of what are the, a bit of like, what are the um, takeaways, so to speak, uh, and then open it up for some questions because I'm getting pinged a bit. Um, what are, what are the alternatives to liberalism and where do you see this evolving? Let's say the core tenets of liberalism survives um, and thrives. Where does it start to, where does it go? What does it start to look like? And then secondly, what are the alternatives? Now we, we know the alternatives in terms of geopolitical competition, um, but is, is that just geopolitical competition or is it more an ideological one? Specifically, I know I'm giving you two questions here that are related, but specifically with respect to China and the Chinese Communist Party, you know, this sort of so-called China's China model, I don't, it's not communist, uh, it's not capitalist, um, it's just one party kind of picking what's going to make them the most money and give them the most power, at least that's how it looks to me. Uh, am I wrong? Uh, is, that a, is, that a, is that a playbook or a framework that is good for the future? If not, why not? So one... Um, what are the alternatives and where do you think this is going to play out? Uh, well, sure. And there's actually a, um, a relationship between the geopolitical 
uh, competition between different political models around the world and the internal struggles that are going on in the United States, in Europe, and other uh, developed countries. Um, you're right that you know the 20th century uh, big struggles were largely over economic policy between a right and the left. You know the right wanted more, you know, uh, uh, attention to you know private uh, rights and and um, capitalism. The left wanted more equality. Uh, that's really been replaced by a division around the idea of liberalism itself. That um, people want strong government. Uh, and that can be provided by a left-wing government, or at least a government that started out as a left-wing government, like those in Venezuela or uh, China, uh, or it can be provided by a right-wing government. You know, something like the regime in Iran uh, would be classified, you know, as a theocracy uh, on the opposite pole. But they're working together with Russia and China in many ways because. Neither of them is liberal. They they really concentrate power in um, in a lot of ways that uh, give you know. And their argument is that liberal societies, because they adhere to a rule of law, because power is limited, are failing. Uh, they're declining powers. Uh, they point to the United States above all as a, as an example of that, and they say, you know, we're decisive. Uh, we can make big decisions, difficult decisions, get them implemented and, and move forward. And, you know, quite frankly, they've got a lot of um, uh, supporters in uh, existing liberal democracies. So you look at populists in Europe like Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour in, uh, in France. Um, you've got Matteo Salvini in, uh, in Italy, Viktor Orban in Hungary and Donald Trump in the United States. All of them have expressed sympathy for Putin, right? And why would you actually admire someone like Putin? I think the, the simple reason is that he's a strong man, that he has created a Russia in which there are no checks and balances. Uh, he doesn't have to listen to, uh, you know, a press that criticizes him. There are really no opposition parties. He can stage manage elections. There are no courts that tell him that he's doing something illegal. And I think that, you know, the illiberalism uh, abroad feeds the illiberalism uh, domestically. And quite frankly, you know, these groups all have been uh, cooperating with one another uh, to undermine, you know, the belief that liberal societies have in their own institutions and the basic justice of the systems that they're supporting. And quite frankly, you know, with the rise of the Internet, uh, it's turned out that anyone can say anything. We used to think that that was a good thing, but, uh, you know, that uh, technology has really been weaponized uh, because it it provides a channel for these alternative um, narratives to be put forward by people that really don't like uh, the idea of liberal democracy. How much of that is, though, it, this might be a overly simplistic characterization, but how much of that is is we live at a time where we're looking for kind of quick answers and quick fixes and finding the you know the the strong central force um it just makes it so-called easier whereas whereas liberalism is messy but entrepreneurship's messy capitalism messy you know you're going to ha have trade-offs when you take risks in order to get innovation you have to have these trade-offs 
So how much of it is really just this, it's emotions have weaponized something that is not all that interesting, which is just, we're just, people just want quick answers and quick solutions. And we're, we're not, uh, as you close your book with, uh, going to sort of the core ancient values and values of character that the founding fathers encouraged of self-restraint, playing the long game, being thoughtful and committed, you know, doing things that lead to better lives and better systems. We're just trying to find things that make things faster and easier. Is well, it? that's, yeah, that's part of it. Uh, I do think that, you know, social media and the nature of technology lead people to think that there are simple solutions, you know, just by clicking the like button, you're actually going to accomplish something uh, in the real world. But, you know, I would say that um, you have to appreciate the fact that there are some real discontents that are driving uh, some of these anti-liberal uh, reactions, uh, and that you know some of them uh, are actually valid. I mean, for example, you look at the MAGA movement in the United States, or people that had voted for Donald Trump. Uh, it's kind of easy for people on the other side to simply say, "Well, these are just a bunch of racists and xenophobes uh, that are just uh, uh, irremediably prejudiced." Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is that that's not the whole coalition. I mean, Trump had more than 70 million Americans voting for him. And a lot of those people were not uh, necessarily hardcore racists or xenophobes. Uh, you know, some of them were responding to a kind of cultural snobbery uh, that is very pronounced, not just in the United States, but in many other parts of the world where well-educated people that are economically successful living in big cities in cosmopolitan areas with lots of contact with you know the outside world tend to look down on people that are not like themselves that live in more rural communities that have more conservative social values uh, and the like and i think that you know that resentment uh is really less economic than uh you know cultural i mean it's it's this attitude of superiority that you know, I think is really, and it's, it's, it's a lack of respect, you know, basically for fellow citizens that I think has driven uh, a lot of people on the, uh, on the right. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a complicated set of drivers of, you know, the, the mobilization, you know, against uh, uh, liberal ideas. Um, now, I want to go. Let's talk a bit about the uh, the the principle. It's it, it seemed to me like you were surfacing principles, like core values of liberalism. You were surfacing a temperament, like being pro-social, um, open-minded, public-spirited, um, and then also certain behaviors, like how to just be involved in civic life and what are these expectations. I'm curious if you could if you could riff on all three. Yeah, sure. And, I, and just to be transparent of where I'm trying to take it is if if you were to kind of develop a you know American citizen curriculum 101, where what is what is the the way to be a good steward of the American experiment and of liberalism? What is it one must know? What is it one must do? Mm -hmm. um, and how must one be? And for reference, I asked this question to George Will. Um, and his comment was first, that is the question, 
that we should be asking, which made me feel good. Um, but he said the first thing that came to mind, uh, especially with respect to our community, is that people are really tired. People feel really burned out. There's information overload. There's emotion overload. People feel left behind. There's economic uncertainty. You name it. There's a lot of reasons to be discontented. Um, but succumbing to that will get us nowhere. And he said, how do you get um, our citizens to reject the fatigue? And especially for our community in this, in at least some of the energy that they put into building their businesses and creating economic value um, to put into creating a, a civic value and, mm -hmm. and much more entrepreneurial in how they think about the role they play in the American experiment. That was the, so it had, so his answer had more to do with not a set of principles or knowledge, more of a disposition, mm -hmm. of, you know, be, be a change agent, reject the fatigue, turn things around. Um, we need people to lead. And so I'm curious for you, is it a, is it a core set of knowledge, like a wisdom? Is it a behavior or is it a, a disposition? Yeah, I think it's all three of those uh, combined. So from the beginning of the American political experiment, there are kind of two visions of what a liberal society would look like. So one just emphasized, you know, a kind of um, freedom from the government, you know, that we don't want anyone telling us how to live. We're just going to retreat into our families, our businesses, our little private worlds, and, you know, uh, people should just leave us alone to pursue those, you know, those um, private interests. But there is another tradition that is sometimes referred to as the Republican tradition, not Republican in the modern political parties sense of Republican, but, you know, the republics of Rome and Greece uh, that were the original models for the American founding fathers of what they envisioned America to be, in which uh, a free person was not simply somebody who enjoyed this negative freedom of being left alone by the government. A truly free person was somebody that had the ability to take charge of their own life, but also the life of their community. And therefore, participation in public affairs was critical to one's individual freedom. If all you did was take care of your family and your own private affairs, you weren't being a full person and you weren't being fully free because really what freedom means is also this ability to collectively uh, determine uh, you know, the, the fate of your own society. Uh, and therefore, uh, in a liberal society, you couldn't be indifferent to what you know, was in the days of the founding fathers called virtue, meaning public spiritedness. You know, people in the first instance had to pay attention. Uh, they couldn't simply be preoccupied with their own private affairs, but they had to think about issues that affected, you know, the common good. Uh, and then they actually had to be active. Uh, uh, and that could take a lot of different forms. It doesn't necessarily take a political form, although it could. I mean, you could decide you're going to run for, you know, public office, or you're going to join the government, or you're going to do something like that. But it could also mean uh, action in civil society, uh, where you, you know, band together with people that share your passions and interests. Uh, you want to change something. You see that there's a problem that needs to be solved, and you act civically in order to 
uh, solve it. So it's this combination of, you know, first of all, awareness of what's going on and what, you know, these broader common problems are. It's mobilization, you know, where you're dedicated to that. And, and quite frankly, the idea that we're all so burned out that we don't have time to think about these things, I just think is silly, you know, because quite honest, if you want to see somebody that's burned out, look at one of these Ukrainians, you know, that is going into their bomb shelter every day because Russian missiles are, you know, hitting their neighborhood and, you know, they've lost their job and they're, you know, hanging on by it. I mean, that's, that's being bur burned out, right? Uh, I, I think that, you know, we Americans are actually privileged to live in a pretty wealthy, pretty safe and pretty secure society. And, you know, I don't think that people really have the excuse of saying, well, I just don't have the time and energy to pay attention to anything other than my own, you know, small private uh, affairs. So I think, uh, again, you know, if you go back to, you know, a lot of the founding fathers like Madison and Hamilton and, and, and the like, uh, you know, they saw the Roman Republic as a kind of example, you know, the Roman Republic uh, you may not be aware of this, but every Roman citizen had to serve in the military and they're liable for service from about the time that they were a teenager up until sometime in their mid 40s. And this was real service, meaning that they had to leave their farms and actually go fight in the army out in the field every, uh, you know, uh, every year and do this for the, you know, most active 20 years of their lives. And I mean, that's the level of public spiritedness, you know, that, that in a way they were uh, thinking about. Nobody's going to do that in America today. But I do think that, you know, there are still meaningful ways of being publicly engaged that uh, will have an effect that will change things and are actually necessary for the proper functioning of a, of a liberal democracy. One thing I don't understand is, is in terms of a critique of liberalism, is that the argument that it's just too self-interested. I mean, we, you have a choice uh, in a free society to be, be social, to be selfish, to, to you know, to be generous, to carve any number of paths. So why does it why does it need to be mutually exclusive? Why can't you be both uh, anchored in a sense of individual rights and individual dignity? Um, and also cultivate the character that is committed to the well-being of others. Well, that's right. When I yeah. read our founding documents, that's what it is, is individuals voluntarily committing um, to a set of ideas and a way of life that lifts up others versus being told what to do by a king. No, that's uh, that's exactly right. I mean, that's why I was saying that in that original conception, freedom wasn't just freedom from the government, it was actually the freedom to work with other people to determine your, you know, your collective future. Uh, that's, that's the most free individual, uh, not someone that's simply holed up, you know, in a, in a small private world. All right, I have a couple questions that are coming through. Some I'm asking, oh, on behalf of others and others, I will uh, send your way. Matt, uh, please, if I can, I'll unmute you. And if you could ask, wonderful. Himmelfarb. There we go. Hi. Take so, it away, uh, Matt. Mr. Fukuyama, first of all, uh, it's a great honor to speak with you. Uh, I, you know, taught some of your books uh, in college. And um, anyways, 
I, uh, I'm curious, uh, given what's going on in the Ukraine, um, if your thoughts on that matter, you know, transcend into some, maybe some other theaters. So do you think, for instance, in the Asian theater, do you think that smaller democracies like Japan are better off uh, remilitarizing or rearming themselves um, or continuing to rely on the U.S. Uh, to, you know, protect themselves? And if they do that, does, does that kind of race or remilitarization uh, make the world more dangerous for liberalism? If the U.S. isn't relied upon, yeah. Uh, so that's a that's a really good question. I think the answer is it all depends on who's doing it and and what that you know rearmament means. The United States has actually been pushing both Germany and Japan to spend more on their defense budgets now for the last thirty years, uh, and it's actually been a source of some frustration that uh, you know they've not been willing to do this. In a way, uh, it's kind of the success of the Second World War, you know, that these were militaristic powers and we wanted to turn them into pacifists and we succeeded. Uh, we meaning the, you know, the allied victors in, in the Second World War. And so now they're, you know, they really don't like thinking about military affairs. They don't want to spend money on that. But I think that the way that the world has moved, you know, with new threats from authoritarian powers, uh, Russia and China, um, they have to be part of a larger uh, coalition. And so uh, I think that, you know, Japan uh, does need to, uh, it does need to spend more on its military. It does need to rearm. I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of suspicion of the former prime minister Abe because he has a lot of ties to Japanese nationalists that, you know, were not entirely bought into the whole, you know, democracy uh uh, line. Uh, but, you know, I think a future Japanese prime minister might be able to do this uh, in a way that is reassuring rather than uh, threatening. Uh, the Germans are going through, you know, something very similar. For the last 40 years, they've basically tried to build up Russia and their relationship with Russia on the grounds that, you know, there, it was driven by a certain amount of war guilt for the invasion of Russia in uh, uh, in World War II. And now they're realizing that that was a big mistake and they've got a reverse course. Um, so I do think that, you know, as pretty powerful middle powers, both of those countries do have responsibilities to add to the, you know, to the collective defense. I have uh, a couple questions coming in and they're related to a comment. Oh. Oh, nice. Uh, Brian, let me, let me actually, I'm going to unmute you, Brian, but I'm going to elaborate, uh, because there's uh, related to your question. Uh, I got another question, but these are related. It is setting a frame. When you poll millennials, Gen Z on democracy and on free enterprise, the, uh, and I'm sure the numbers would look the same if you said liberalism, um, they're rapidly they're low and rapidly declining one question is how do you turn that around uh hopefully part of this process because we got a lot of parents on the phone um is is part of that process but uh, how do you turn that around and what is it we must understand and so now let me tee up 
um, Brian's question because he makes the comment that a lot of these counter views are just a result of being uneducated about history and what central powers can do to people um, if unchecked. So, Brian, please take it away. Sure. It was fascinating as you described the snobbery of the elites and some of the pushback on that. And it's dismissive of the idea that there's very bright people, well-educated, well-traveled, live in cosmopolitan areas who have the view that you should be classically liberal, defined as be difficult to govern and impossible to rule. <laughs> and yet there is also a tendency for people to defer to authority and to want to just be intellectually lazy and let someone else take charge. And throughout history, that centralized fiat rule has been dysfunctional and actually unproductive compared to what we have, which is a difficult to govern United States. And the point of view, I think, is uneducated that people who are elites and have maybe Ivy League degrees, uh, discounting mine, and it it really is an uneducated point of view to think centralized fiat ruling monolithic ideas are the best outcomes. And you've written a great deal of books. Do you have books that you recommend, old or modern, that you think would help educate people as to that uh, dysfunction of centralized fiat rule that people have a tendency to favor just out of ease, convenience? Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, my favorite author, uh, kind of in the Western tradition, uh, is actually Alexis de Tocqueville, you know. Oh, yes. So he visited the United States in the 1830s and wrote Democracy in America, and then a couple of other really interesting books, especially his book on the French Revolution. And uh, if you, especially the book on the French Revolution, he was, he said that the problem in France was actually exactly that over-centralization, right? That under the old regime, under the French monarchy, you had a highly centralized state that made decisions at every level of government. And, you know, he said that, for example, uh, there's no what we would call a private sector entrepreneurs in uh, France before the revolution, because everybody was looking to the government to subsidize them and give them a leg up. And it never occurred to anybody that they could start the business and just, you know, begin things on their own. And, you know, he said that that had a very corrosive impact on people's character because it made them dependent and um, subservient and that that's something that continued after the revolution. So that even though you had a completely different ideology that was now ruling uh, the country, um, uh, you still had this tendency to you know, look to the center rather than to civil society or to the private sector or to, you know, other sources of energy and and uh, and authority. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the book that I always took to be kind of central in giving a really vivid historical uh, account of how this process works. And by the way, you know, I started my graduate school life as a Sovietologist, my, my <laughs> dissertation on Soviet foreign policy. And that Tocqueville book is actually a very helpful way of understanding 
what what the dysfunctions in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union are, because mm. like the to an even greater extent than the French monarchy, uh, the Soviet Union was based on a Leninist ideal where everything was centralized and there really was no private sector. There was no civil society. You know, there was no horizontal kind of cooperation, you know, between citizens because the state and the party dictated uh, everything. And I think a lot of the issues uh, that people have in that part of the world is that, you know, they they still have a lot of that mentality, you know, that they're always looking to the state to uh, save their bacon uh, uh, and uh, really don't have the initiative to, you know, fix things on their own. Uh, but yeah, I would say that's probably the the one book that I think really addresses this issue pretty pretty well. On on the question that uh, you know that you raised about how do you counter these tendencies, uh, you know, in a way that's why I wrote my book on liberalism because in many ways, you know, virtually everybody in uh, in you know North America, Europe, other places accepted liberalism as kind of the framework, but they didn't really ever stop to understand what it was and you know what the underlying uh, values were. And uh, I think that's especially true in uh, among Gen Z uh, of uh, people that you know never got that basic, education, either in philosophy or in civics uh, and the like. And that's why it seemed to me it was important to write a pretty straightforward book explaining to people, you know, what liberalism was and why it was superior. Just to give you an example, I have a, uh, I had a student who, you know, I was trying to advise on a, on a senior thesis and he said, well, you know, I want to move beyond liberalism. And, uh, I said, yeah, well, how do you anticipate doing that? And he, you know, his view, I think, is common among very many American progressives right now. He said, well, you know, we can't just treat people equally. We have to sort them by groups and, you know, give, uh, you know, uh, sort of deprivilege the privileged and, and raise up, you know, uh, people that have been historically marginalized and organized uh, society along those lines, and you know he um, he himself was an immigrant from India. He doesn't like Prime Minister Modi and his you know Hindu nationalism. And you know, I said to him, "Well, basically, you're just taking the opposite side of the coin from Prime Minister Modi. You actually want to divide you know your country into these different groups. Uh, he wants to privilege you know Hindus. You want to privilege other people." Uh, but, you know, in a sense, both of you are engaged in this zero-sum struggle over resources, you know, which of these groups is going to end up on top, uh, and you're denigrating a liberalism that says basically you should try to treat, you know, all of them uh, 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 equally. Uh, so, you know, I, I just think this is an example of how people, especially younger people, really have not sort of thought through some of the basic, you know, premises that uh, uh, under which they, you know, are going forward in life. And I, in my experience, a lot of that that's accurate about young people, but in terms of adults, um, 
they might have the intuition that this is off or this is not right, but they don't have the wisdom or the skills to talk about it and course correct. Uh, and so you, I at least see sort of a breakdown in terms of the understanding of and the commitment to uh, and the championing of uh, these ideas uh, that are just so necessary for giving our kids a world where they could be the best versions of themselves. Um, I want to shift a bit to some uh, sort of teed up some geopolitical elements and I'm getting a couple questions on geopolitics. I'm going to go to Warren um, really quickly. And then I have another one on kind of some geopolitical related um, stuff. Warren. Yep. Okay. There you go. Thank you go very for much, it, Professor Fukuyama for an interesting talk. Um, as in the U.S., there, there's a growing schism between left and right in Europe. And I was wondering, has the shock or will the shock of this Russia invasion of Ukraine uh, be a catalyst for change? Will people come together more, do you think? Uh, well, I've actually, <laughs> I've been to Europe three times in the last five weeks. And so I've been talking to a lot of people all across the uh, continent and uh, I'm actually quite encouraged uh, at the degree of support that Ukraine has gotten, uh, you know, from quite a lot of places uh, there. They're obviously under a great deal of strain because there is a populist right that's saying, you know, it's our support for Ukraine and the sanctions that is leading to this cutoff of Russian gas. And you know, we need to turn that tap back on. And so we need to settle the war and so forth, which I think would be extremely short-sighted because I don't think that Putin is actually interested in any kind of long-term accommodation. Uh, and I think that giving in to that kind of blackmail now is uh, really not going to solve anything uh, in the longer run. Um, but uh, I actually think we're going to get through the winter okay because there have been protests, and I don't want to understate the amount of pain. I mean, in you know, I was just in the Netherlands and in Germany, and people are seeing their gas prices increase by six, seven, eight hundred percent. I mean, it's really, you know, pretty devastating. And the businesses that rely on natural gas are, uh, are you know, a lot of them are shutting down and so forth. Uh, but um, if you look at the poll data, actually, uh, once the Ukrainians began making gains uh, and the conflict no longer looked like it was a stalemated long war that would go on for year after year, uh, opinion began to solidify, you know, behind support for uh, Ukraine. And that's why I think these Ukrainian recent Ukrainian victories have been very important. My personal opinion that I've expressed uh, uh, at some risk to my reputation is that actually the Russians uh, are going to lose this war. Uh, I've actually believed that, uh, you know, for right from the beginning of the war for a whole bunch of reasons. I, I just think there's no, you know, I, I've, I've been to Ukraine a lot over the last eight years, and I just see that there's such an enormous difference in the motivation between these two countries. Since Putin announced his mobilization, something like 700,000 young Russian men have left the country because they don't want to fight in a war they don't believe in. At the beginning of the Russian invasion, you know, maybe 100,000 Ukrainians came back to Ukraine because they did want to fight on behalf of their country. And I think that, you know, it, it speaks a lot to what the real stakes are uh, 
here. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's proving that, you know, the Ukrainians are just much better soldiers than the Russians. And uh, I do think that the war is actually not going to continue past, uh, you know, past this, this winter. So all of that speaks to, you know, the ability of our democracies to actually see this thing through, to defend their principles, to not have to compromise them. And I really hope that that will actually be the outcome. Do you think, uh, what are the risks that uh, Putin will use some form of uh, nuclear weapons? Yeah, that's a question that everybody's been asking uh, recently. And I would say that, you know, it's obviously something that needs to be taken super seriously. I think the Biden administration, I know a lot of people that work in that administration. And, you know, right from the beginning of this crisis, that's actually one of the things they've been focusing on and kind of gaming out scenarios and so forth. However, I don't think it's uh, there is going to be that escalation uh, for a couple of reasons. The you know first is that nuclear weapons are actually not very helpful on the battlefield. They're terror weapons, uh, you know, that can be used to demoralize civilian populations. But even in that respect, I don't think they're going to have that much effect on Ukraine. Uh, uh, but secondly, uh, the consequences for Russia of escalating to nuclear weapons are going to be devastating. Uh, you know, those countries in the global south that so far have been kind of sympathetic to them, like China, India, South Africa, nobody is going to support a nuclear escalation. You know, that support will disappear. And I, I suppose... Um, probably the most important consideration is that the U.S. and NATO have many uh, responses uh, that will not involve nuclear escalation, uh, but will be, you know, crushing to the Russian position, not just in Ukraine, but in, you know, to Russia generally. Uh, so, you know, Putin has done a lot of things that surprise people. He's taken a lot of unwarranted risks and gotten into trouble for that. But I think that he's probably aware that, you know, there's no sequence of events where he uses nuclear weapons where he actually comes out a winner. Uh, and I, I hope that, you know, that is his actual uh, train of thought at the moment. I appreciate the breakdown. How far does this extend uh, or should it extend in terms of defending our values? Can you talk a bit about uh, how you see the situation in defending Taiwan, and then uh, also what's going on in um, uh, Iran tragically right now. Mm -hmm. And then if you have, if you could, if you could squeeze it in, I think even in in Cuba, um, it seems like the regime there is starting to have at least some. Maybe this is wishful thinking, but some awareness that they don't have things figured out. Well, I, I think what you're seeing is a really failure of authoritarian government. Look, I mean, why do we want checks and balances, you know, and accountability in government? Uh, part of it is just a very practical observation that if you are a single leader and you don't consult anybody about policy, you're going to make big mistakes. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of failures of that sort in Russia, China, Iran, precisely. In Russia, uh, you know, you remember Putin sitting at the end of this 30-foot table with his defense minister. He was so isolated during COVID that he obviously didn't understand 
what was happening in Ukraine. He didn't understand what was happening in his own military. And as a result, he made one of the biggest strategic blunders in my, you know, in my memory. Uh, and similarly in uh, China, you know, the zero COVID strategy, uh, which Xi Jinping doesn't seem to be willing to move off of one iota has been really extremely harmful to, you know, Chinese growth right now is under 3%. So they're below the average for the Asia Pacific region. This is unprecedented since they began their reforms in 1978. And again, this seems to be because of the personalistic nature of the Chinese regime now where Xi Jinping is really the only uh, uh, decision maker. And then finally in Iran, you know, I think there comes a certain point where the dictatorship just loses credibility, you know, across the board. And here it's really with women. Uh, I think that women have been the powerful force behind this current set of uprisings, which in the past have been put down with a lot of violence. But this one is now going on for, you know, for several weeks and is now drawing, you know, defectors from the regime side who, you know, simply don't want to shoot a lot of women just for taking off their uh, hijabs. And so I, you know, I find all of this uh, very encouraging. It's a sign that people living under authoritarian governments, A, don't like it, but B, are willing to take tremendous risks uh, in order to live uh, lives that we, you know, in an existing liberal democracy can take for granted. Uh, and I think that, you know, sometimes we lose sight of you know, what the alternative to living in a liberal society uh, is. Um, and, you know, it's not very pretty. Uh, and that's why I think actually the Ukrainians especially are doing all of us a favor by, you know, by resisting as heroically as they are. Amen to that. I just, I, I pray that we could be more committed to uh, to these ideals uh, without having to be oppressed and threatened to wake us up. <laughs> it's just, you know, I guess the, the, the relapse of taking things for granted is, uh, it's a bug in human nature. That's for sure. Um, well, are there any parting words, professor? I, we are, you're an intellectual Titan. I'm very blessed to uh, get to spend some time with you and listen to you. We all are, um, helping us light the way on something so important, but if you have any closing words, please share. No, I, so I really appreciate what your group is trying to do. I think that uh, all of you are in a position to actually make a difference. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I wrote the end of history and I have to keep reminding people that I didn't have this uh, Marxist understanding that there's this inevitable machine called history that just pushes forward regardless of what human beings decide and do, uh, that to the extent that you know, you're going to have progress towards more tolerant, open, uh, you know, prosperous societies. It's because people want that and are willing to sacrifice in order to get there. And uh, I think that, you know, what you're doing is preparing the ground for that. So, you know, I keep, you know, keep it up. I think it's a, it's a great effort. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you to uh, all of you in our community of being committed to this uh, great vessel that is alder and that is a bo boosting the american experiment so thank you and thank you professor okay. see you all soon bye, -bye. bye.